Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We are pleased to bring to you the guest speaker talks from the 2019 East End Conference held in the Astronomer Pub in Middlesex Street in the East End of London on the 5th and 6th of October 2019. The fifth speaker at this year's conference is Mark Ripper. Mark is the author of Murder and Crime, Whitechapel and District, The Moat Farm Mystery, and co-author of The A to Z of Victorian Crime. He is the editor of Trial of Israel Lipsky, the 84th instalment in the Notable British Trials series, of which he is one of the general editors. His talk is entitled Unreliable Policeman's Memoirs. Okay, good morning, welcome to my talk, which is called Unreliable Policeman's Memoirs. Uh, I'm leaving it to the audience to decide whether the adjective unreliable qualifies the noun policemen or the noun memoirs. Uh, We begin in the East End. This man is Jacob Dickey. And in 1923, he was resident at 1C Tredegar Square in Bow, a square with a criminal history, the same square where Henry Wainwright, a Whitechapel murderer, had been resident before his capture and conviction in 1875. Dickey lived with his wife, Carrie, and their young daughter, Nora, and he earned his living as a taxi driver. On the 9th of May 1923, in the course of his work, he was shot and killed in Baytree Road in Brixton, South London. The man charged and charged with and later convicted of Dickey's murder was this man, Alexander Campbell Mason, a Scotsman in his early 20s with a criminal history of his own. Mason was a burglar by profession, had been in and out of prison in both Britain and Canada for three or four years. But was he a murderer? In particular, was he Dickey's murderer? The jury thought so, but one feature of the case caused concern. The only other man who could possibly have been Dickey's murderer was this man, Eddie Vivian, a criminal associate of Mason's and a man who had previous for the use of firearms. Vivian had been the principal witness against Mason at the Old Bailey, giving potentially fatal evidence against his former friend in a brash, self-important manner. But everyone recognised that Vivian was, to say the least, an unreliable sort of fellow. And at the, old, at the Home Office, it was considered that the facts of the case might have supported a murder charge against Vivian and Mason combined, or even against Vivian alone. The witness and the defendant could have swapped places, and the evidence might, might still have worked. These unusual circumstances prompted the Home Secretary, William Bridgman, to commute Mason's death sentence, and Mason was sent to prison for life, serving 14 years before his release in the autumn of 1937. This was a troubling case, but by 1930, seven years after his conviction, Mason was in Parkhurst Prison on the Isle of Wight and on the point of being forgotten. Then this man, Hugh Fletcher Moulton, published a book about the case, bringing Mason back to the consciousness of the public at large. In the book, Moulton, who was a lawyer and the son of a distinguished judge, argued that Mason had been wrongfully convicted. And he based his argument in part on the 1927 memoirs of this man, Francis Carlin, former superintendent at Scotland Yard, one of the highest profile police officers 
of the interwar period. Carlin had been involved in the investigation into the murder of Jacob Dickey in 1923, and the case had figured in Chapter 7 of his memoirs, which were entitled Reminiscences of an Ex-Detective. Moulton noted serious discrepancies between, on the one hand, the evidence that Eddie Vivian gave in court, and on the other, Vivian's pre-trial statements to the police, which Carlin had purported to reproduce in his memoirs. To Moulton, something smelled fishy. Had the police made a procedural mistake, or was there perhaps a deliberate conspiracy to convict Mason despite, rather than because of, the evidence that Eddie Vivian gave to the police? Was Vivian not just unreliable, which everyone admitted, but perjurious? Moulton publicly urged the authorities to examine the matter again, and this gave the case for Mason's innocence a shot in the arm. Mason himself had never admitted to the murder, although he had become rather tired by 1930 of petitioning the Home Office about it. At the Home Office, Moulton's book came to the attention of Sir Only Blackwell, the permanent undersecretary with particular responsibility for criminal cases. Blackwell invited this man, James Berrett, to review Carlin's book and to compare Vivian's police statements, which were still on file, with the versions that Carlin had published. Were the discrepancies, which Moulton had identified real discrepancies, or was something else going on? Barrett had been a divisional detective inspector. W Division, Lambeth at the time of Dickey's murder, had been much more closely involved in the investigation than Carlin had. Also, unlike Carlin, he was still in the police. Carlin had retired before publishing his memoirs, and Barrett therefore had access to paperwork to which Carlin no longer had access. <coughs> so Barrett settled to his task, noting first that while Carlin said in his book that Vivian had made two statements to the police, he had in fact made four. Carlin had been present at the first two. Perhaps he was unaware of the other two. So Carlin was off to a bad start. And then it was time to compare what Carlin had written in 1927 with what Vivian had said in 1923. In the interest of time, we're going to look at this graph... This is why you come to these conferences, <coughs> This graph compares Vivian's original statements with Carlin's later versions purely by word count. Carlin is in the gold columns. The original statements, which are held in Mason's MEPO file at the National Archives, are the blue columns. You can see that Carlin's versions are significantly shorter in the cases of both Statement 1 and Statement 2, between a fifth and a sixth the length of the actual statements. Let's be generous. It might not be impossible to summarise a statement of nearly 2,000 words in a little over 300 words. That's not completely out of the question. But Berrett, who reported back to Blackwell at the Home Office, was pretty clear that that was not what Carlin had done. Besides the statements, there were other mistakes in Carlin's retelling. This is what Barrett said in his report. His, that is Carlin's, account is somewhat egotistical to say the least, probably written more for public reading rather than the correct history of the case. For example, page 102 of Mr Carlin's book states that he was at Brixton soon after 2 o'clock in the morning on the 10th of May. Actually, he did not arrive until 9.30am. He also says on the same page that I showed him a pair of gloves. 
At this time, only one glove was in the possession of police. He is also inaccurate with regard to the number of shots fired from the revolver. The descriptions of the statements made by Carlin and the taking of them is somewhat coloured. Reading the story told by Mr Carlin, one is, of course, inclined to think that he has recorded Vivian's own words accurately. But this is far from correct. Moulton, then, had been wrong to rely on Carlin's book. Carlin had misled him, had created the impression of discrepancies where there were none. There was a much closer match between Vivian's evidence to the police and his evidence to the court than Moulton's analysis had indicated. And the problem had arisen because Moulton had, take, had taken Carlin's memoirs at face value. Moulton must have thought that Carlin, a policeman who had been involved in the investigation into Dickie's murder, would be a reliable source. But Berrett showed that that confidence was misplaced. Sir Ernie Blackwell at the Home Office later mentioned the outcome of Berrett's work in a letter, and here is part of what he said. Carlin's book must have been written largely from memory, and his memory was very defective. He purported to set out statements made by Vivian, verbatim, and they, really bore, they bore really no resemblance to the statements that Vivian had actually made to the police. His book is egotistically written, as most of these reminiscences by ex-detectives are. <coughs> and this is what I want to consider in this talk. Could the view have existed at the Home Office by 1930 that most ex-policemen's memoirs were egotically written? Or was this just a throwaway comment by Blackwell in a private letter? If the Home Office really did think that most ex-policemen's memoirs were egotistically written, how did the Home Office mandarins develop that impression? And was that view justified? So far, some of the constructions here, things like his memory was very defective, must be ringing bells in the ears of ripperologists. The Whitechapel murders are a case in which ex-policemen's memoirs play an instrumental part. And we're all probably used to hearing, reading and contributing to discussions of whose memory was better than whose, and who can be relied upon as we attempt to pick over the buffet of police opinions on the identity of Jack the Ripper. I'm really going to offer only initial thoughts here, but we're going to consider some of the big hitters in the Ripper case as they present themselves through their memoirs, and we're going to ask ourselves whether they can be trusted or not. Now, it seems to me that the idea of ex-policemen writing memoirs is problematic from the word go. Good policemen are objective, following the evidence where it leads them, for example, rather than forming ideas before the evidence is in and then propping them up when they begin to wobble. All policemen, I think, would want to present themselves in their memoirs as good policemen. And so it's an irony that memoirs are perhaps the most subjective form of writing to which one can turn one's hand. Tastes vary, but to sit down and write one's life story might be considered to be, to some extent, an egotistical act of its own. <coughs> so here we have policemen like Carlin, who have achieved a good deal of seniority, who can only command the respect of their colleagues and, more importantly, the public, if they are fair and objective, announcing their subjective opinion that they were professionally objective in inescapably subjective ways. There's a tension here that's difficult to resolve. One of the earliest tests of the tolerances of this conflictive genre was provided by this man, 
so Robert Anderson. As most people here will know already, Anderson wrote about Jack the Ripper in his 1911 memoirs, The Lighter Side of My Official Life. This book had been serialised in Blackwood's magazine in 1910, and Anderson's printed discussion of the Whitechapel murders case and other writings in Blackwood's magazine had got him into hot water at the Home Office. The Home Secretary, Winston Churchill, was not pleased that Anderson had been telling tales out of school, even though Anderson thought that he hadn't been doing any such thing. Police regulations theoretically clamped down on tell-all memoirs. You couldn't write them during your time in the force, and you were liable to forfeit your pension if you made an occupation out of writing them after you had retired. But there were certain legal hurdles to jump, and a police pensioner who had turned into a memoirist had the right to appeal against the loss of his pension at the quarter sessions. So depriving an ex-policeman of his annuity on these grounds was not quite as straightforward as, in Anderson's case, Churchill might have liked. Churchill conferred with the civil servants at the Home Office and then asked the government's legal advisers to consider the case for withdrawing Anderson's pension. And these are the terms in which Anderson's writings were considered. It is submitted, one, firstly, that Sir Robert Anderson, by writing these articles, for which no doubt he is paid, and by his other publications since his retirement, such as the book Sidelights on the Homes, Home Rule Movement, published in May 1906 and which reached a second edition in the following January, is carrying on the writing of books and magazine articles as an occupation. He would no doubt reply that to him, writing is merely a recreation. And secondly, that in these articles he has used the fact of his former employment in the police in a manner which the Secretary of State may reasonably hold to be discreditable and improper. Of this it is only possible to judge by a general review of the articles, but it appears to be clear that their whole value and interest arises from the fact of Sir Robert Anderson's former employment in the police. If he had been a private person, no one would have published the articles and no one would have read them, and it may well be held that it is extremely discreditable for an ex-police officer of high rank and in a confidential position to earn money by the publication of reminiscences which are full of attacks on those to whom he was opposed politically and of spiteful and in many cases untrue statements with regard to his former chiefs and colleagues. Attacks on his political opponents, spiteful and importantly untrue statements about other officers. Perhaps Anderson's writings were showing the signs of being egotistically written. In 1930, remember, Sir Ernie Blackwell thought that most ex-policemen's memoirs were egotistically written. Blackwell had been at the Home Office since 1906, appointed in the aftermath of the Adolf Beck case. Anderson's magazine articles were appearing in 1910. Blackwell was at the Home Office at the time. It's certainly arguable that the brouhaha created by Anderson's memoirs influenced at an early stage the development of the idea at the Home Office that ex-policemen's memoirs were egotistically written. Perhaps that wasn't just a throwaway remark by Blackwell. Perhaps it was his experience talking. And perhaps Sir Robert Anderson flickered through his mind when he wrote it. It's worth noting that the Home Office decided not to strip Anderson of his pension thinking that they might be embarrassed if they were to lose an appeal against a decision at the quarter sessions. And I remind you, all of this was happening in 1910. 
In the file at the National Archives recording the Home Office's anxiety about Anderson's publications, there is an outlier right in the middle of the bundle, a cutting from the Daily Telegraph in November 1927, in which the Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police reminded police pensioners that they risked jeopardising their annuities if they tried to write themselves into history and into profit. November 1927 was 17 years after the Anderson thing, but it was only six months after Francis Carlin had published his unreliable memoirs. I think it's very likely that Scotland Yard looked closely at Carlin's memoirs soon after they arrived on the shelf, noticed the mistakes, and decided to warn other officers and pensioners about the potential pitfalls of autobiography. At the Home Office, newspaper coverage about the Commissioner's warning was noticed, clipped, and stored in the file to which it most naturally belonged, which was the one relating to Anderson's literary indiscretions. There are then good reasons to think that the Home Office might really have believed in 1930s that most ex-policemen's memoirs were egotistically written, and that Sir Robert Anderson might have provided them with an early reason to hold that opinion. We're going to look now at Anderson's contemporary, Sir Melville McNaughton, another police officer with a good deal to say about the Whitechapel murders. His memoirs, Days of My Years, were published in 1913. Without even turning to his discussion of Jack the Ripper, we can make a preliminary assessment of his reliability by, uh, can we make a preliminary assessment of his reliability by examining his treatment of other cases? And does he too conform to the Home Office's egotistical model? Again, these are initial ideas only, but we can start by considering Mary Piercy. Mrs. Piercy was having an affair with a married man named Frank Hogg, and in 1890, in northwest London, she murdered Frank's wife Phoebe and Frank and Phoebe's daughter Tiggy. This was just the sort of thing that got McNaughton out from behind his desk, and he was there at the mortuary in Hampstead on Saturday the 25th of October when Mrs. Piercy and Frank's sister Clara identified Phoebe's body. Mrs. Piercy had put in a histrionic performance at the mortuary, and grief does strange things to people, but little doubt her loss of equipoise caused the policeman present to wonder about her. Anyway, after the identification, McNaughton went out into the street, and this is what he says happened next. The rain was pelting down as the detective inspector, that is Detective Inspector Bannister, and myself left the mortuary. Before I had gone many yards, I was confronted by a fresh-looking young woman who craved speech with me. Together we sought the seclusion of a dripping alley. She then told me she was Mrs Hogg's niece, and that she had the gravest suspicions of Mrs Piercy, who, she believed, was in some way connected with her aunt's death. Two young patrols were at once told off to keep Mrs Piercy under observation. Uh, you might have noticed that McNaughton doesn't spell Mrs. Pierce's name correctly here. That's not a good start. We ought to consider whether this dramatic scene in the dripping alley ever happened. In court, Elizabeth Stiles, the fresh-looking <coughs> young woman to whom McNaughton refers, Elizabeth Stiles never mentioned it. Why not? The accusation, if it happened, was immediately relevant to the police's chain of evidence. Here, taken from the Old Bailey Online website, is what Elizabeth Stiles said in court. 
I am a housemaid employed at the Swiss cottage in Albion Road. The deceased was my aunt. I saw a great deal of her. I went to see her in February when she was ill. From what I saw of her condition of health, I spoke to her husband and afterwards communicated with her relations and she went to her sister's. At that time, the prisoner was at Prince of Wales Road nursing my aunt. I know that my aunt afterwards came home. From something that was said at the time, I ceased to visit the house in Prince of Wales Road from February, but she very often saw me. On the 23rd of October, I was with the last witness, that's Martha Stiles, another relative, when I saw the deceased. She came to my house. We were all three there together. I remember a pencil note being shown by her. Some conversation took place about it. It was afterwards burnt. My aunt was not well after February to October. No rainstorm, no dripping alley, no McNaughton. So perhaps that part of Elizabeth Stiles' courtroom evidence slipped past the shorthand writer. Perhaps the judge caught it. We have his notes. Housemaid, niece of deceased. I knew her very well. I went to see her in February. She was then ill and went to Mill Hill. Mrs. Piercy was nursing her at home. I ceased to visit her house from February. She often saw me. On the 23rd of October, I was with the last witness. She came and showed me a pencil note. There was some conversation about it and it was burnt. She hadn't been well. No rainstorm, no dripping alley, no McNaughton. So perhaps Elizabeth Stiles mentioned it at the magistrate's court instead and for some reason wasn't examined or cross-examined about it at the Old Bailey. You can choose whatever source you like for the magistrate's hearing. This one is from the Daily Telegraph, but you don't find McNaughton in any of them. Elizabeth Stiles, a housemaid at 18 Albion Road, Swiss Cottage, whose home is at Folkestone, said the deceased was her aunt. She had never received letters from Mrs Hogg, but she wrote to her until Mr... <coughs> Hogg forbade her the house. Witness had quarrelled with Mr Hogg respecting the way in which his wife was being neglected. They were not very happy together. Mrs Piercy was attending her in February and witness was suspicious of her. <coughs> she did not think Mrs Piercy was paid for her services. She was sent for by Mr Hogg. Her aunt had made statements to her about Mrs Piercy, whom she suspected of fondness for her husband. She seemed hurt about it. Mrs Hogg said she had received three letters from Mrs Piercy. One asked her to meet her at the Mother Shipton, and when they met, she was asked to go to her house, but she did not go. A month ago, Mrs Piercy asked her, that is Phoebe, to go to South End to look over an empty house, but she did not go. The third letter witness saw. It came on Thursday morning and was not signed. It said, Dearest, come round this afternoon. Bring your little darling. Don't fail. Her aunt said she had some suspicion that the woman would do her some harm. Why? She said, fancy asking me to go down there and leave my baby here. How do I know what she wants me to go to that empty house for? Anything further? No, sir. Aunt told me she suspected Mr Hogg of visiting Mrs Piercy. She wore a wedding ring and keeper of 18 karat gold, but I cannot identify either of those produced. Nothing further. No rainstorm, no dripping alley, no McNaughton. It's completely clear to me that McNaughton, who was not a witness in court, invented the meeting with Elizabeth Stiles. For what it's worth, McNaughton tells us in his memoirs that as a result of what Elizabeth Stiles told him in the alley, 
Two young patrols were at once told off to keep Mrs. Piercy under observation. That didn't happen either. <clears throat> After their visit to the mortuary, Clara and Mrs. Piercy went back to Portland Town Police Station with Police Sergeant Edward Nursey, where they viewed some of the evidence in the case. And then Nursey took them to Frank and Phoebe's house, and then he took Mrs. Piercy to Hampstead Police Station. And from there, he took her to her house. And by this time, the game was up, and Nursey sent a telegram to Inspector Bannister, who arrested Mrs. Piercy on suspicion of murder. Two young patrols? No. Mrs. Piercy was under police control anyway. The only purpose served by McNaughton's invention of this story about Elizabeth Stiles and the Dripping Alley is to move himself, egotistically, closer to the heart of the action, just as Carlin later did, when he pretended to have been at the scene of Jacob Dickey's death at two o'clock in the morning, rather than half past nine. Does McNaughton make a habit of this sort of thing in his memoirs? I looked at one other case, that of Albert and Alfred... Stratton. The Strattons were fraternal predecessors of Mason and Vivian, burglars and generally unpleasant <coughs> characters who, when they decided to burgle the oil and colour shop at 34 Deptford High Street on the morning of the 27th of March 1905, ended up killing the live-in manager, 71-year-old Thomas Farrow, and his 65-year-old wife, Anne. Anne was, in fact, discovered alive, but only just, and was removed to the hospital where she died four days later. The case has gone down in history as the first British murder to have been solved by the use of fingerprints, which were discovered on the tray of a cash box in which the elderly couple had a paltry amount of money. The money, of course, had been removed by the Strattons. Scotland Yard had been impressed by the crime-solving potential of fingerprints, but until now, no opportunities to exploit that potential in a really big case had, been, had become available. The Stratton's case was therefore a landmark in Scotland Yard's forensic development. Let's see what McNaughton says about the preservation of the vital evidence. He says this, Police were called in and the Yard was at once informed. In those days of rapid locomotion, it did not take long to get down to the scene of the tragedy and by 9.30 we were on the spot. Under the husband's bed was a small cash box, the tray of which was lying a few feet away. On inquiry being made as to whether anyone had touched this tray, a young detective sergeant confessed that he had moved it a little way under the bed, as he feared it might be disturbed by the feet of one of the ambulance bearers when they entered the room. He was assured that no harm had been done, but was told to go up to the yard in the course of the day and have his fingerprints taken. The cash box and the tray were then most carefully wrapped up in paper and carted away to the, to the fingerprint department at Scotland Yard. This young detective sergeant was a man named Alfred Crutchett. Sergeant Crutchett was ill and in hospital at the time of the trial, but his statement before the magistrates was introduced as evidence, and this is what he said. On Monday the 27th of March at 9.40am I went with Inspector Hailstone to 34 High Street, Deptford and there on the floor of the bedroom where the body was with blood on it I saw a tin cash box with the tray lying close by it. I took a piece of paper and removed the tray and took two pieces of paper and removed the box by the corners with the paper between my fingers and the box to avoid any print of my fingers. I removed them a few feet to the right and took charge of them to prevent anybody touching them. 
They remained till about 11.30am when Assistant Commissioner McNaughton and Chief Inspector Fox, who was a local senior officer, arrived and took charge of them. Nobody touched them while I was there. Sergeant Deacon, the Yard's fingerprint specialist, was not there when I arrived. Sergeant Atkinson and Police Constable Patterson and a doctor were there when I arrived. I do not know the doctor's name. So McNaughton in his memoirs says that he was on the scene by half past nine. Crutchett in his evidence says that McNaughton wasn't there until half past eleven. Chief Inspector Fox and Sergeant Deacon both gave evidence agreeing with Crutchett's schedule rather than McNaughton's. Fox said, I arrived there with the Assistant Commissioner and Deacon about 11.30am. Deacon said I got there shortly after 11am and left about 3pm. Again, McNaughton is improperly moving himself into the frame, painting himself into the picture. It is true that Crutchett later had his fingerprints taken, but just to dot the I's and cross the T's, the deceased pharaohs were <coughs> fingerprinted too. In the circumstances, it's hard to see what more could have been asked of a local sergeant at a time when nobody knew when the big opportunity to test fingerprints in a murder case would arrive. Crutchett was super careful, didn't touch the tray except with a barrier between his own fingers and the tray itself, and kept his eye on it until a senior officer turned up. There is a needlessly patronising tone to McNaughton's account of the crime, as if the local officers were at risk of jeopardising the prosecution by adulterating the evidence. The facts are, contra McNaughton, that those same local officers were the ones who preserved and protected the evidence. They deserved McNaughton's praise, rather than his condescension. The effect of this misinterpretation of the facts is to diminish Crutchett's role and to egotistically enhance McNaughton's by comparison. Bad news for McNaughton, but more research is needed to assess his memoirs as a whole. We turn lastly to this man, Walter Dew. Dew's memoirs were published in 1937. This was seven years after Sir Ernie Blackwell's comment about the egotistically written memoirs of ex-policemen, but I see no reason why the trend should have changed over the intervening period. Nick Connell did a fine job of annotating Dew's book, I Caught Crippen, for a new version published by Mango in 2017, and here and there we corresponded about things while he was preparing his commentary. One incident described by Dew was particularly interesting to me. It involved a string of burglaries on the south coast for which a man named Lewis had been arrested and charged. Lewis had been held on remand but subsequently bailed pending his trial. Dew might have been expecting things to go smoothly from this point on. But one Sunday, he tells us, a pleasant walk was interrupted by a mysterious incident. Sunday was a nice day. I fancied a walk in the country and, persuading a gentleman engaged in the case to accompany me, set out to enjoy the afternoon sunshine. On one side the lane was flanked by a low hedge. Presently an uncanny feeling came over me. There seemed something sinister about that hedge. I got the impression that we were being followed. For a time I resisted the temptation to leave my companion's side and see for myself whether there was anyone behind the hedge or not, but the feeling persisted, and at last I yielded to it. There was something, nothing definite, a mere shadow. I called out. There was no reply. 
We continued our walk without any further disturbance on my part. The following day, Jude discovered that Lewis had shot himself. He went to the scene and consulted with the local senior officer. I had had a narrow escape, Jude continues, of losing my life. The dead man had left a note. In this he had blamed me for all his troubles, and added that he had followed me about the previous afternoon with the intention of shooting me before taking his own life. His excuse for failure was that he had not been able to get near enough to me. Later this note was produced at the coroner's inquest at which people gave evidence of the threats the dead man had uttered against me. The shadow behind the hedge was explained. It must have been the would-be murderer's shadow I saw when I shouted out. It had been a close call. Now, this seemed to me on the face of things as if it might well be another example of egotistical writing, an ex-policeman's fantasy played out against the unspectacular backdrop of early 20th century Portsmouth. Which burglar, out on bail on a relatively straightforward non-capital offence, would go to the trouble of trying to shoot a detective? But there was more to this than I first imagined. At the coroner's inquest into Lewis's death, an acquaintance of Lewis's named James Alfred Haas provided an insight into the deceased's fragmented state of mind. James Alfred Haas, a dealer in antiques of Pembroke Road, stated that deceased told him on leaving prison that it was enough to drive anyone out of their minds to stay in prison day after day with nothing to do and in solitary confinement. He also said that he was so worried that he contemplated suicide with a piece of oakum, but the thought came to him that he had not made his will. He said also that if he had to go back, it would drive him out of his mind and he would do away with himself. Another startling statement by witness was that the deceased told him that the way and manner of the police when they came to his place so played upon his mind that if he had a loaded revolver, he would not have hesitated to have used it against the police. And Dew himself provided evidence, which was, if not exactly what he wrote in memoirs, then pretty close to it. Last Sunday, the inspector mentioned as a curious incident that he was at Brockenhurst and saw Lewis on the platform. On looking round, he saw the man following him, but on turning sharply, the deceased walked away. There was a question or two relative to the subject of the bail granted to the prisoner put to the inspector, who remarked grimly that if he had known of the man's inclination to use a revolver against him, he would most strenuously have opposed bail. So Lewis had been stalking Dew, hoping to get a shot at him. In Dew's memoirs, the scene shifts from a railway station, Brockenhurst, to a lane in the country, but Brockenhurst railway station is a country station surrounded by bushes. And Dew saw Lewis, not just Lewis's shadow. But essentially Dew is right. He presents himself as the target of the deranged Lewis, not to make his story more dramatic, but because he was. And he represents his cases with this admirable degree of accuracy over and over throughout his book, as Nick Connell identifies. Even when dealing with his most famous case, that of the titular Crippen, Dew is reliable, not egotistical. Perhaps in those circumstances we have to re-evaluate what Dew says about the Whitechapel murders. He tells us things that other policemen, perhaps less reliable policemen, do not. He tells us, for example that he was the first policeman on the scene of Mary Jane Kelly's murder at 13 Miller's Court, contradicting the inquest evidence of Inspector Walter Beck, who says that he was first.
But even then, Dew doesn't really insist on it, indicating that he and Beck actually went to Miller's Court together. He tells us that he slipped in the mess on the floor of Mary Jane Kelly's room. No other source substantiates that. But Dew isn't proud of himself, and he never says that he, and he says that he never funked a police job in the way that he funked that one. And then there's this. I have told you about the eyes of Marie Kelly, as Dew calls her, wide open and staring in death. To someone, those eyes suggested a possible clue. There was at the time a widespread superstition that the retina of a murdered person's eyes would, if photographed, give a picture of the last person upon whom the victim looked. I do not for a moment think that the police ever seriously expected the photograph of the murderer to materialise, but it was decided to try the experiment. Several photographs of the eyes were taken by expert photographers with the latest type cameras. The result was negative. Again, Dew is out on his own here. Nobody, nobody else mentions the experiment. But perhaps the reliability of his text as a whole ought to count for him. He's no Anderson, hot under the collar and spitting insults at his former colleagues. He's no McNaughton, creating fictional rainstorms and doubtfully dripping alleys and compressing time frames to exaggerate the importance of his actions. Dew's memoirs are of a different calibre, and perhaps very tentatively, we might permit ourselves to consider the possibility that the police really did photograph the eyes of Mary Jane Kelly, hoping to detect the face of her killer on her retinas. Because Dew, the least egotistical of the memoirists whose work we've examined in the course of this talk, tells us so. Thank you. Seen that Mason couldn't possibly 
have left the scene in the way that he claimed to, and I would have closed the case so he couldn't possibly get a reprieve, because apparently uh, his reprieve was granted on the grounds that there was still a scintilla of doubt about, uh, about his, his guilt. Um, the, third, the third point I'd make is the last one, uh, is that um, another unreliable source, uh, police source, is Sir Henry Smith. Yeah. Uh, quite apart from everything else, he claims to have been five minutes behind Jack the Ripper yeah. as he fled through the streets yeah. on the uh, early hours of September 30th. Well, by my reckoning, he couldn't actually have turned up at <laughs> Mitchell Square until about 2.30 in the morning, earliest. Yeah. Yes, and Smith gives us the, uh, yeah. the image of the blood gurgling down the plug hole in Dorset Street, right. which, yeah. you know, nonsense. 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 Thank you. Rob? Yeah, the um, Teddy Haskell case, 1908 in Salisbury, which yeah. I've done quite a bit of research on. Yeah. Um, Jew came down from Scotland Yard to investigate that case, and it was at total odds with all these sort of police force. He was clutching at straws to get some victim against the boy's his mother. And the other thing he said was that since being made chief inspector, he never lost the case. But in his memoirs, he, he chooses to neglect the case that Mr. Haskell was found not guilty. Right. He doesn't put anything to all about that in the book. Yeah, the police lost the evidence, the fingerprints on the knife was the knife was uh, missing. Um, yeah, the, the um, chief customer source we said he, had, he did not like um, Jews' method of investigation. Uh, basically, the whole thing, in my opinion, um, I've, I've got real doubts about Jews. Good, thank you, that's very good. Yeah. Yeah. So going a bit later, I would also mention Fabian, who was much more yeah. interested in being a personality yeah. than getting yeah. the facts right. They haven't even talked to me about witchcraft murders. No, right. <laughs> Did, didn't you say that you knew Mary Kelly as well? There's yeah. No evidence. Well, that might be true, I don't know, but it's very difficult to prove. Any other questions? Two. Going to say as well with regards to McNaughton, um, he's got past history with regards to the uh, West Ham child murder stroke vanishings. Unfortunately, I can't remember the name of the victim in this particular case. But in his memoirs, he um, gives a completely erroneous account of the finding of one of the victim's bodies in, in a cupboard. Um, and there is not a shred of evidence that any of it happened from any of the witnesses that was there. There's no actual evidence he's actually. Everything went to the crime scene. Yeah, McNaughton's. <coughs> yeah. Yeah. He's special. <laughs> yeah. Lindsay? Uh, just a comment about the taking pictures of the victim's eyes. Yeah. Um, I found several newspapers' accounts saying that the police have done that with Annie Chapman's okay. as well, which I, I hadn't read before. No. But I found several contemporary things that they've done that. So that is plausible. If they had done that with Annie, that they may have done it with Mary Jane. Yeah, thank you. So, yeah. Um, uh, the, 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 the Dickey case, I, I, I hadn't heard of that before. Mm. Um, so, this guy Mason was convicted yeah. uh, he, uh, and sentenced to death. Yeah. It was commuted to life imprisonment and he served 14 years. Yeah. On what grounds was he released after the 14 years? That was kind of standard practice for. He, he behaved ex extremely well in prison um, and um, 
he was considered by that time to be likely to go straight. And people do tend to, you know, crime tends to be uh, um, an indulgence of the young, and you know, people do do sometimes, not people here obviously, do sometimes grow out of it. So, um, so he was. It was considered the, the the prison authorities were happy that he had a, he had a place to go where he would be kind of put back on the right path. Um, didn't work out for him very well. Okay, so he wasn't released on the grounds there were doubts about the case. No. No, okay, he'd served his time. Okay, Because um, I've, I've, I've been looking again, because it's such a fascinating story, at the Florence Maybrick yeah. at Holy um, and, and, and she did 15 years. Um, and, and she had been sentenced to hang and was committed to life imprisonment. Um, and it, it just seems odd to me that because there are doubts about the case, uh, instead of hanging, you, you change that to life imprisonment. If there are doubts about the case, there are doubts about the case. And actually, life imprisonment doesn't make it any better, in a sense, other than it allows for time for that evidence to, 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 to appear. Um, and, it's, and, and that certainly didn't happen in Dickie's case. And it didn't happen in Florence case. No, that's right. That's right. Um, so it's a complicated kind of legal um, conundrum. The Home Secretary had the... Uh, the right to intervene only in capital cases, only in murders, um, effectively. If you were convicted of uh, assault or fraud, non-capital cases, the Home Secretary could do nothing about that. They had no, no right to intervene. They also had no particular interest as elected and unelected government officials in overturning decisions which had been reached fairly and reasonably by juries, because people who expect to be tried by juries—that's your—that's your right in this country—and the Home Office didn't want to overturn juries' verdicts unless they were perverse. In this case, the jury's verdict wasn't perverse, but. They did. They had a scintilla, as you put it, as you correctly put it. They had a scintilla of doubt. Even even the Home Secretary at, at one point was experiencing well, quite significant doubts. And we 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 know about the Lipsky case. We know about the Maybrick case. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so the fact that the Home Secretary was experiencing doubts as a human being wasn't expected to supersede the decision, the rational decision of a jury, fair decision of a jury. And um, what they could do, as you say, is, is uh, offer a reprieve, <coughs> normally on grounds of compassion to convicted murderers. So if you were young or vulnerable, or there was some, or, or there was some sort of uh, coercion, or, or other, other mitigating circumstances, that's normally when reprieves happened. Very rarely did reprieves happen because of doubts about the evidence. This is one case where the, the reprieve happened basically because of doubts about mm. the evidence. But that was not sufficient for the Home Secretary to say, ignore the jury's verdict, I'm doing what I want to do. Okay. Uh, the, the point is sorry. that um, if you reprieve, if there was a scintilla of doubt mm. and you reprieved the, the person, yeah. uh, other evidence might then come to light Correct, yeah. to, to say that he's yeah. innocent. Yeah, which I don't think, I can't really think of a case. I can't at the moment. But I, but you know, you mentioned Morrison. Morrison is a case where that happened. Mm. Stanley Morrison and, yeah. um, and the murder on Clapham Common. Yeah. 
he was reprieved because of doubts about the That's evidence. Right. Yeah. And um, there was subsequent evidence in the case, but none that completely took um, right. Morrison out of the picture. They may, he, he may, in fact, he seems like he, he probably did uh, work well, with someone else. There must have been another person involved who knew, who knew more about it, and, and which one of them had inflicted the fatal he, blow, he no one knows. He though the only man in history ever to starve himself to death as a protest of but by 1923, <laughs> Have, um, re like, refused right, basically they refused right to appeal at that point because there's no new evidence and there was no new evidence. The ho how can the Home Secretary then, as, a, you know, as an elected official, uh, um, sort of superimpose himself on that decision? Interests of fairness, my impression has always been the government problem with Anderson is something to do with accurate or inaccurate, just he'd opened his mouth at all. Yeah. Yeah. So they're not actually implying he's wrong. He's saying, but you shouldn't have said it. Well, they say they say that in the you know which file that is, don't you? Yeah. Um, they say that what he was saying about his colleagues was untrue. That's the, that's the claim. Um, but he was he was clearly indiscreet, and that, and they had a, they had a big problem with that. Yeah. Same to Charles Warren, though, writing yeah. words. Yeah. Absolutely. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Mark. Thank you. And that was Mark Ripper at the 2019 East End Conference. We would like to thank Mark Ripper, Adam Wood, Andrew Firth and Carl Kopak for making this and all of the talks from this year's conference available for our listeners. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by casebook.org, where you will find over 170 roundtable discussions, author interviews, conference presentations, and archive recordings all about the Whitechapel murders and East End crime and history. If you have any questions or comments about any of our podcast releases, feel free to contact us on the Casebook message boards or on Facebook and Twitter by searching for RipperCast.